You're listening to KMUZ Turner. Visit our website at KMUZ.org to see our complete program schedule and learn more about supporting KMUZ. Welcome to the Forum, our weekly public affairs program. We edit and rebroadcast recordings of lectures, interviews, and presentations of public interest to the Mid-Willamette Valley. Find our Facebook page, The Forum on KMUZ, for upcoming topics and to leave comments. Today's forum is a recording of former Oregon Secretary of State Phil Kiesling, who talks about the state of politics and has a well-informed overview of what regions are growing fastest, how the state has bounced back from economic dips, and how traditional industries like timber harvesting are doing in the new millennium. Hello. I'm Ron Ekus, president of Salem City Club, and I'd like to welcome you today for another of our timely programs on current issues. I'm glad you can join us for this program in our 2021 and 2022 program season in what is our 55th year. Our mission is to provide nonpartisan civil discourse on important civic issues. Because of the ongoing pandemic, we'll be presenting our program virtually through the fall. We will be presenting programs every two weeks and we hope you will sign up and join us. I wanna thank our members, volunteers, and friends who continue to support Salem City Club. Your memberships and donations enable us to continue presenting these programs. Thanks as well to Spire Management for the association services they provide. And Salem City Club also depends on the generous support of our supporting business partners. These are KMUZ Community Radio, Eugene Fobert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home, and Busy Bees Real Estate. And now today's program lead, Jan Margosian, will introduce our speakers. Thank you, Ron. And good afternoon, members of Salem City Club and guests. I'm delighted to be able to introduce our speaker today as he has been someone I've admired for many years. One of Oregon's most widely respected political analysts, Phil Kiesling, will speak today on the demographic changes and their impact on Oregon's political future. Uh, Phil knows Oregon and has carefully watched and noted the many changes in its citizens over the last four decades. He's did this first as an investigative reporter for Portland's Willamette Week, and then uh, as an editor for the Washington Monthly Magazine in Washington, DC. When he returned to Oregon, uh, he worked as a legislative staff assistant to Oregon's uh, well-known Speaker of the House of Representatives, Vera Katz. Then he was elected as a state representative himself. In 1991, uh, Kiesling was appointed Oregon Secretary of State by Governor Barbara Roberts. He was then elected and re-elected to this statewide position, uh, whose duties included oversight of the state election system. Now, during his tenure, he helped lead the successful effort to make Oregon the nation's first state to conduct all elections by automatically mailing ballots to all active registered voters. Uh, Phil is retired from his most recent job as director of the Center for public service in the Marco Hatfield School of Government at Portland State University. Since then, he has devoted much of his time to volunteer work as founder and chair of the National Vote at Home Institute. Okay, Phil, it's your turn to wow us. 
Well, Jan and members of the City Club, thank you so much uh, for that very kind introduction. I think as Jan has uh, suggested to you, um, uh, part of my checkered past involves my having to now be a recovering uh, politician. I tell people I'm in the 24 step program because I think it may take us at least twice as long. But uh, uh, my time as a, as a journalist, um, uh, serving in the private sector as well for 10 years, has uh, given me, uh, I think, some, some perspective, um, and I'm uh, happy to share it, and, and most importantly, want to learn from the perspective of members in the audience. Um, I'll also add a couple things up front uh, about my checkered political past. Uh, I am a certified redistricter. In 1991, the job fell to me to redraw at least the state legislative boundary lines, and that's a topic uh, I'll cover some uh, later about redistricting generally. I'm also, uh, some people uh, know me as a polling place destroyer who are still upset uh, that in the 1990s, Oregon became the first state to decide to automatically mail ballots to every registered voter. And uh, there may be some questions about that because that has not exactly been an uncontroversial topic in, uh, in, recent, in recent years. I wanna start the presentation by just uh, reminding folks about an old coward quote that uh, is a favorite of mine. The playwright who once said, consider the public, uh, never fear it nor despise it, coax it, charm it, interest it, stimulate it, shock it now and then if you must, but above all, never, never bore the living hell out of it. So I hope my discussion today will, will uh, meet that standard of not boring people. Um, and as a friend once said, Phil, you're an, you seem to be an equal opportunity offender and agent provocateur. Uh, I'm certain I will say things that will offend uh, registered Democrats, registered Republicans, and those who are none of the above, but uh, hopefully out of that, it will very much be in keeping with your goal of, of furthering uh, civil and nonpartisan discourse. Welcome travelers to Beach, North Dakota. Last summer, my wife and I had a chance to take a five-week trip through 16 of the lower 48 states, over 6,000 miles to visit friends and, and family. Uh, I had been a little hesitant about the drive through North Dakota. It's over 300 miles and people have certain, uh, you know, perceptions about North Dakota. I'd never driven through. And we were very pleasantly surprised how nice North Dakota was. But we were particularly struck right after we crossed the border from Montana to uh, see this new welcome center that uh, welcomed everybody on Interstate 94 in this case. It was uh, uh, had restrooms, it had lots of information, they had people staff there telling and extolling all the virtues of, of North Dakota. This is what we discovered on our way home, greets people who first enter Oregon on the eastern edge of I-84 near Ontario, Oregon. The restrooms on the left, the sign with the obvious typographical error uh, is in the middle. And there is a visitor center tucked away behind and which was staffed by a, a, a very nice and helpful person extolling the virtues of visiting Oregon. But I couldn't help but be struck by the contrast between how one state chooses to present itself, not just to visitors, but its own citizens, either leaving or coming back, and how Oregon does. Uh, the gutters were kind of in bad shape on, on this one. Um, obviously, the landscaping had not been kept up. And this kind of shouts, poor state. 
In fact, in almost every state that we went to, uh, we found something similar in terms of just what, what, what greeted people. So I want you to think of this and hold these two images in your mind, because in some ways my subtitle to my talk today is Oregon isn't such a poor state anymore, so it's time to stop acting like one. Let it start with census, and I'll get through this very quickly because I know a lot of you have already heard a lot of this, particularly as it involves Salem. But I'm a great believer that demographics uh, is a strong determinant of, of destiny as a society and also has a lot of influence on our politics, though we may not realize it at, at the time that it does. So I wanna talk a little bit about things like who we are, uh, how we make our money, how we house ourselves, and, and of course, too, a little bit about our, our political affiliations and thoughts. Oregon today is far more diverse than it used to be. Now there's this debate within the demographic community about how you classify people because uh, Hispanic, Latinx uh, individuals uh, may identify also as white, but we're at the point today that only about 75% of uh, Oregonians are uh, non-white, non-Hispanic, uh, according to census definitions. The number of Hispanic, Latinx individuals in Oregon has literally gone up ninefold since 1980. I first kind of, uh, soon after I returned to Oregon was 1980 and started working as a, as a journalist. And at that time, uh, the demographics of who we were in terms of uh, just something as basic as this was much different than it is today. I find this slide especially interesting. It's from PSU population research because the diversity of our population is far higher among the younger that you get. There's obviously logic to that if you think about it, um, but this is reflected too in the makeup of a lot of our K through 12 schools where we have districts that are now uh, majority of the kids in grades one through 12 do not identify as, as, as white, uh, non-Hispanic. 40% noted here identify as something else. We're also an older population and an aging population. Oregon now ranks 18th in terms of the percentage of people over 65 years old. And as these charts indicate, the changes that'll happen in the next 20 years in terms of population change are heavily oriented to the far right of this graph. Uh, the number of people that are passing out of the baby boom years into their 70s, their 80s, and even above, count me among that, I turned 66 last summer, is having a huge effect on our society as well as our politics. I've just mentioned some of the things that I think we have still not really addressed, things like as we age, how do we make sure that our population has the long-term care and other assistance that they need to live the rest of their lives in safety and, and dignity. But we're definitely older population uh, and we're a bit on the older side. The median age, half is above and half below, is now uh, almost 40. It's never been higher in the history of Oregon. This is also particularly fascinating to me, which is that we have relied largely for our population growth on in-migration and only a little bit on natural birth, but we have relied on both. We are fast approaching the inflection point after which the number of deaths in Oregon will exceed the number of births if we aren't there already. This too has enormous implications in how communities grow, the rate at which they grow, but also the makeup of their population. Now, what I mentioned earlier about Oregon being a not so poor state anymore. I love this graph, and this one's a bit dated, but it shows if you go all the way back to the Depression era, 
that remarkable surge of prosperity that happened really beginning in the late 30s, early 40s, driven by the dams that were built and hydroelectricity, the World War II, the shipbuilding industry, and particularly the post-World War II housing boom by which uh, Oregon was cutting roughly two and a half times as much timber to house the nation as it is today. We then went through a series of problems, many of them familiar to those in the audience, the recession of the 70s, and particularly the early 1980s, dealt with issues that had to do with environmental protections, the spotted owl. But at the same time, we had the ramp up of the high-tech industry, Intel and others, and then fell again through 2009. Um, And we probably reached our nadir uh, right about then Uh, just as the economy suffered its worst depression in 75 years. But progress has been made. After bottoming out uh, around a decade ago, we have steadily increased to the point that we're almost now back to where we were, were back to the national average on the measure of something very important for capita personal income. Not as high as Connecticut, but higher than, than the Mississippi, as you can see in this chart here. We're now the 22nd in the country, we moved up three slots. Our per capita personal income of 56,312 now is about at the national average. And yes, California and Washington are still higher uh, than than we are, uh, uh, as is Alaska where expenses are much higher. But you can see here that Oregon now is doing as well, if not better than many other states in, in the country. And uh, I think that's a very important thing to start affecting our psychology when it comes to politics. But here's the rub. The prosperity that many of us know in the Valley, particularly in the Tri-County area, over in Central Oregon, Deschutes. Deschutes County grew the fastest of any county, by the way, uh, in the last 10 years, almost 27%. The prosperity and the income levels is very widely ill-distributed. In fact, no time in American in Oregon history has the gaps between the richest and the poorest counties been as large as they are today. Some counties are at 60 to 65% per capita income of the state average. Other places are in the neighborhood of 110 and 120%. And yes, living costs are often higher in some of the more affluent counties. But I think we all know if we've traveled, not just through different parts of our own communities, Marion County has uh, much diversity economically just within it, but around Oregon, we're keenly aware that the economic fortunes of our citizens vary widely uh, depending on geography. More heartening news, recent forecast from the Oregon Employment Department just came out, is we're gonna add 300,000 new jobs by 2030. So here you have a demography that is getting older, Uh, where births will soon uh, be smaller than the number of deaths. And yet the projections are uh, going forward uh, after the drop because of the pandemic of employment growth that will be as on a steeper curve as it has been in any times the last 30 years. Many reasons for this and Josh Lerner of the uh, economic analysis at the Oregon Employment Department, one of the true treasures of Oregon, I believe in terms of his uh, analytical capabilities and, and the publications he puts out. I, I commend him to any of you uh, if you're not familiar with him already. But uh, this paints a picture of, of Oregon uh, looking forward, having a lot of opportunities for its citizens of working age to find work. But we also know that jobs are going to be very, very different. And this is nothing that, that we don't know about. 
but uh, the dominance of the service industry uh, support healthcare uh, as, uh, as a dominant, the mix of what's education levels are gonna be required is gonna be very, uh, very different as well. Uh, but this is a nice chart uh, also from the employment department that gives a sense of the relative scale of those new jobs and uh, where they will be coming from. And if you go to the website itself, you can click down and get more specifics. But I wanna look at, I wanna talk real briefly about one thing that's at the very far lower right corner. And that has to be a component of that, which is forestry, which when I was growing up, was king. Timber was king in Oregon, uh, and uh, and it's it no longer is. But we're still number one. We're the top lumber producing state in America still. Uh, and our timber harvests, while they have fallen significantly from their peak at 10 million board feet years ago, now have roughly leveled out between three and a half and four million for most of the last decade. The vast majority of this now is on private land, not public land, and that has been a profound sea change. But it is still a robust sector of, of Oregon's economy. And I'm going to circle back to this later because I think it can and should be an even more robust part of the economy, but in a different way than we might think about it so far. Also, the Census Bureau gives us some interesting insights about housing. And this is a topic I'm sure others can talk to much more authoritatively than I can. But this graph fascinates me because it, again, looks back over a period of 30, 40 years, looks at the number of new private housing authorizations by building permits. And we know from the last census that in 2020, there were 18,000 new units in Oregon permitted for our residents. But here's the problem. We need 30,000 just to keep up. And if we don't keep up, housing prices continue to go up and up. I think they went up 13% in the Salem market, about the same in Oregon just year over year, despite a pandemic. And if you go back and look at the demographics of our society, who they are, young people coming of age, graduating from school, getting into the job market, but where will they be living? Can they afford where they can be living? I think this is one of the biggest challenges that this state faces. Now I want to talk a little bit about education. And I think that in recent years, our conversation about education has gone much too feeble, has in a sense been dominated too much by, well, we're doing better and hasn't paid enough attention to things that a state that takes its future seriously needs to confront head on and actually start doing a good deal more about it than just simply putting more money into it, which I'm glad we're doing, but a lot more is needed. You can get into all sorts of arcane debates about how best to measure high school completion and graduation rates. And I'm sure people will dispute Oregon's rankings. I've seen rankings as low as 48, maybe in the 30s. But this map was, is to me the best illustration of how Oregon is really an outlier in the Western United States, if not the country in terms of our failure to graduate people in a reasonable amount of time. We recently made progress, we're up to 83%, I think, but there are states, in, most states in America are reporting 90% or above on the same scale. And the graduation rates, of course, among students of color is far lower than it is among uh, uh, white non-Hispanics, um, Native Americans, in particular, are, uh, uh, it's a real challenge. 
And the, the number of kids that we are still failing uh, is, is something that uh, ought to unite us across the political spectrum and getting serious about. What about college? Well, if you look at the percent of Oregonians who are, have a bachelor's degree or higher, it's about 33, 35% based on the last census. But that includes a lot of in-migrants, a lot of people that have moved here already with their degrees in hand. Other states have educated them and paid for them. And Josh Lerner did an interesting study recently that said, let's just look at people that are born in Oregon. Um, not that they're any better or any worse, but let's just look if you were born here and obviously went through the Oregon school system and are still here, what are your chances of having a bachelor's degree? And this chart tells me something very important. It tells me that the very far left of the curve, how many people in each of these birth years start out with having a college degree by the time they're uh, 25 is sadly quite low. Only 25% at the age of 25 who were born in 1990. Yeah, it's climbs to 30. A lot of people get their degrees later. I worked at Portland State and that was uh, true of Portland State. A lot of our graduates uh, in their 30s, even 40s and above. But the lack of progress over several generations here, noted by not just how relatively close together some of these curves are, but most importantly, why they're not a good deal higher. The United States now ranks about 10th among industrialized countries and some countries of the world have 50% more of their populations with a college degree by the time they're in the 25 to 34 year old uh, cohort. This too is something that needs far more attention. This also reinforces this and shows you the disparities, women, white, non-Hispanic, the single largest, most likely to get a college degree. And you can see how this affects uh, different kinds of groups, depending on both gender and, and race ethnicity. And then finally, the geographic differences that we have in this state. This is a slide that uh, John uh, uh, Horvick of uh, DHM Research shared with me based on the American Community Survey, looking at uh, the percentage of population um, of adults in various counties in Oregon and that particular level of education. Um, I was really struck by how different uh, it, it is and, and how much the disparity is. But college is much less important going forward to most Oregonians um, than other kinds of education. And I will uh, risk some offense here to say that my own political party, I think, uh, is not been using its, uh, uh, not been focusing as much as it should on the first problem and instead wants to do everything at once. This is from the Annie Casey Foundation and note the ranking of how kids zero to 18 fare when it comes to education. 2021, we rank 41st. We are behind Mississippi. Now, again, you can argue with the rankings and how they're done and what the components and the assumptions are. This takes into account things like graduation rates and absence from schools. We have a high absence rate, for example. But the thing that it that is, is most one of the most important components of this has to do with something as basic and as simple as the following. How many of our students at third grade are proficient in reading. 
I'm going to pause on this slide a little bit and note there is a methodological switch here. We actually changed and made more rigorous this scoring system in 2014-15. So, so we were going arguably, we were pretending that the situation was easier prior to that. But to me, this is the single most important graph that faces Oregonians today as we look to the future. When fewer than 50% of your third graders reach that stage proficient in reading at a third grade level, you have the other 50% of your population on a path to higher dropout rates, less ability to earn a decent living, more of a chance of living in poverty, more of a chance of dying of drug addiction and, and, and other maladies uh, well before your time. And the failure of Oregon to make progress on this measure, much less look like we have plateaued or even gone down, I would argue is the single most important question that all of us ought to be asking anyone who's running for political office in 2022. What would you do to reverse this curve and instead of making Oregon 41st, and I think our indicator on this is in the 30s, how do you make us number one within the next 10 years? How would you make Oregon a place that we're all proud because our third graders are able to read and thus the odds that they will succeed further down in life is much greater. So now let's merge into politics after giving you a dive through this various demographics and information and some of these statistics. And I hope I haven't put too many statistics on the, on, on the plate. But we've obviously also changed a lot of who we are in terms of our party registration and, and how we define ourselves. And uh, you can see here that none of the above uh, now outnumber both Republicans and Democrats, an inflection point we reached about five years ago. And this curve is going up and up and up. If you're 18 to 34 year old years of age, 54% um, of you in the last general election identified as neither Democrat or Republican. And you can see how this breakout happens with people by party registration as they get older. This also means that in closed primary elections, and we have those, and uh, independents may be able to vote, but it's kind of difficult in Oregon for a bunch of reasons, that the median age of people that are members of the Republican Party is now in the upper 50s, half above and half below. And the median age even of people who are registered Democrats in Oregon is about 52 to 53. You're tuned to All Volunteer Community Radio, KMUZ, Turner. Broadcasting to the Mid-Willamette Valley on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. This is our weekly public affairs program, The Forum. I'm Forum producer Stella Schaffer. More Oregon school kids are graduating these days, but we're still lagging behind. The state's economy has been a sturdy one in the face of national recessions. And possibly the most surprising, the timber industry is doing great these days. Former Secretary of State Phil Kiesling spoke to a lunchtime Zoom event organized by Salem City Club, reviewing the state of the state, its economy and educational achievements, and how we stack up compared with other states. There were some surprises. The population under 50, which is uh, more than half of the voting age population of adults, uh, most of them are saying, in effect, we don't like either one of the standard political parties. 
So redistricting. We have a current set of maps about Congress, and I'm not going to get into state legislative maps, but I thought I would quickly get into this. Our politics, of course, are defined in no small part by how we define ourselves as communities. And much of the conversation about redistricting these days talks about the partisan effect, the uh, hope that both parties are, are going to deploy to do everything they can to make the districts uh, as favorable to their side or the other, depending on who's in control. This is the Oregon congressional map that the legislature just enacted. It's now under court challenges, I think everybody knows. It's got a new district, the sixth district uh, that Oregon now has. Princeton University grade states on their redistricting plans. Uh, this one, by the way, got an F for partisan gerrymandering. Um, Republicans have gotten furious at that in their lawsuits. And just yesterday, the one that came out of North Carolina was also given an F that was designed by Republicans and the Democrats are suing and they were outraged by it. I look at a map like this and I step back and say, whether you're Democrat, Republican or not affiliated, what's going on when you draw a legislative district and you can see it right in the middle there that starts about two miles from my own house in inner Southeast Portland. If any of you know the Eastmoreland Golf Course, um, I think that is in this district that then stretches and goes all the way to Bend, Oregon, crossing the one major geographical boundary um, in, in the state that I think most people would agree is the single most uh, biggest geographical boundary of the Cascade Mountains to uh, go along Highway 20 uh, and get all the way to the town of Bend. I'll, I'll just say it very directly. I'm a Democrat. Democrats drew this map. I am just uh, gobsmacked that um, this was seen as something that was had fidelity, not to the part of don't be partisan, that debate will happen, but to the issue of communities of interest, how people in Junction City, in South, inner Southeast Portland, and in Sisters, not to mention Bend, Oregon, have a shared community of interest is a question that just um, astonishes me. Um, so we'll see what happens. So what does this all add up to me in terms of our politics and, and some of the things that uh, we should think about going, going forward? I wanna just mention a, a couple things and then uh, leave it open for questions. Who controls how US House districts are drawn? This is a map that I'm ashamed of. This is a map that shows the states where Republicans currently control congressional district boundary lines and where Democrats control them, Oregon, Nevada, New Mexico, and the West. We ought to be yellow. It is long past time to take redistricting out of the hands of partisan legislators, whether it's Republican or Democrats, and put it in the hands of an independent commission. And yes, are the details difficult, uh, choosing people, what the standards are, et cetera? Of course, but we're at a point in our politics today that both sides are so locked in to doing everything they can to get their partisan uh, uh, advantage that they're not only repelling most voters who don't even wanna to belong to these organizations, but we've got into an ever escalating war, not unlike the Soviet US arms race that influenced a lot of my childhood growing up, where it's just gonna get more and more brutal, difficult and senseless. Uh, so I'm very hopeful 
that a redistricting reform uh, ballot measure is probably what it'll take. We'll get on the ballot and we can say resounding yes to it and take this out of the hands of politicians. But there are also some other things that are important to do uh, as, as well. When you have most people no longer belonging to a political party, and yet the vast majority of political office is being determined not by who wins in November, but by who wins their party nomination in May, something is seriously broken. 10 years ago, 15 actually, I worked with a lot of people to try to get um, uh, a new version of how we run primary elections to happen in Oregon. Uh, Washington and California both have everybody run together. They have their party affiliations. Uh, in California's case, it's noted on the ballot, but you don't elect people anymore or nominate them as Democrats, as Republicans. You, you do top two. I think top two actually might not be as good of an idea today as up to four, in which you then do ranked choice voting and you let people choose if minor party candidates or independent candidates reach a certain threshold then maybe three or four of them are on the general election ballot out of the primary and you give ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting now is the case in the state of Maine. Uh, it's used in a lot of American cities. The Minneapolis elected its mayor this way. New York City just did. And I think that mainly without problems. So that's another, I think, very important political reform because the partisan primary system by almost definition and design gives the strongest voice to the most partisan among us uh, and uh, increases the odds that candidates will be produced that a vast swath of citizens aren't keen on either one and they're forced to choose between uh, uh, who they like, uh, the, the uh, who they dislike the least. This map is also one that we should be ashamed of and we should focus on. This is the percent of four-year-olds served in state-funded preschool as of 2019. Oregon does a little better. We're not in the bottom 10, but we're not even close to the top 10. States like West Virginia, Oklahoma, Florida, Iowa do a far better job of getting four-year-olds in state-funded preschool than we do. Now, we've made some progress. Uh, Multnomah County voters actually approved a tax increase on certain taxpayers to fund programs in Multnomah County. And this may well be part of the Build Back Better bill that is being debated right now in Congress. But there has been, I would argue, no excuse for why we even got to this point. And I think it should be uh, uh, clear that having uh, preschool education and the, uh, and the demonstrated value, the return on investment of how it helps increase proficiency reading at the third grade and has uh, uh, salutary effects through the rest of our lives. But I'd also argue that we should be doing things around helping with preschool that can also help our college education and uh, rates. Um, there's a program called AmeriCorps, which pays, it gives people uh, tuition breaks for serving the country in a variety of ways, whether it's uh, cleaning up communities, planting trees, helping in, uh, in, in public schools. Uh, the state of Nebraska has decided that if you've served in the AmeriCorps program, even if you're from out of state, we will uh, reduce your tuition that you pay in Nebraska if you come here and, uh, uh, and be part of our community. Oregon should be a magnet for people that have decided in their youth that they want to uh, do more than just have the rights of citizens, but also 
take on the mantle of responsibilities as citizens to give a year or two of their life, whether it's for the military, whether it's to a domestic program like AmeriCorps. And, and Oregon as a state can reward them with making it far easier to access college, vocational school, anything post-secondary than they do today. This too can help bring people into preschools and help with that next generation of kids as well. And I also wanna talk about green infrastructure as the kind of third and final piece of this. And I call it trees, trees, and more trees. We all know the devastating fires that have happened and, and Marion County was one of the worst affected um, in, in 2020. We also know with the concern about climate change, the focus on planting trees, including in places where they haven't grown for years or even decades, we have millions of acres that are unforested that used to be, but have never properly been replanted. In 1948, Oregon voters by a bare margin of just 12,000 votes approved a $12 million bond measure, 12 million to reforest 300,000 acres of the Tillamook forest near where I grew up uh, uh, and that had been devastated by fires during the depression. Well, I would argue that it is high time for Oregonians to look at an investment in our working landscape, as well as uh, uh, forest health in areas, including uh, uh, national forests that are not being currently logged, to restore, rehabilitate, replant, and quite honestly, put thousands, if not tens of thousands of people to work across the state so that we can reduce the odds, even with climate change getting worse, that we'll have these catastrophic fires. And, and I think this is especially important. We can bring people of, of the younger generation whose political views are still forming. They're not quite as hard and fast as they are with many of us older people, <laughs> um, that we can um, bring them together working side by side with each other. The lack of familiarity that we have with our fellow Oregonians across the state, that sense that when you go to a place like uh, Mount Huron County and you're told, well, they're not gonna put money into rebuilding this visitor center, even though we've complained about it for years, because, well, they just don't listen to us over there in Salem and in, in, in Portland, so it'll never happen. That sense of pessimism, that sense of, of estrangement, that sense of polarization that goes beyond whether you got a red or a D uh, hat that you like to wear or, or, or none of the above, is something that ought to concern all of us and a massive program on a scale, the likes of which Oregon has done before in the past, but can do even more in the future is something that I think it's high time to do as well. So I'll close with some relevant advice from Babe Ruth and, and, and I hope that what I've said today is consistent with it. Yesterday's home runs don't win today's games. The we have done remarkable things in Oregon during my lifetime. I had the chance years ago to actually to work for Tom McCall, who was, who was one of the leaders of that era that uh, helped us with things like land use planning and, uh, uh, and other reforms. But as I've lived the rest of my life in Oregon and expect and hope to live a good many more years, I've more and more struck by how much we rest on our laurels, how much we don't pay attention to some of these underlying demographics, what has been happening, what is happening underneath our feet, and some trend lines that if left unattended to will make us a poorer state going forward, uh, not an even richer one. 
So next slide, please, and the last. Uh, I like this quote, never ever rest on your laurels. Tomorrow's, today's laurels are tomorrow's compost. Um, change is inevitable um, uh, and we face challenges the likes of which um, I'd argue we've never faced before. But in terms of how we can best address them, having going forward with courage and the willingness to ask some inconvenient questions and to risk offending some sacred cows, I think is gonna be more important than it's ever been. So again, thank you all. And I'd be delighted to answer any and all questions that, that you might have. Thank you, Phil. Well, I, for one, will say that um, you certainly didn't um, bore me and I'm sure <laughs> not other people. So you met that mission anyway. Thank you so much. So my name is Cindy Condon and I'll be moderating the Q&A today. And it looks like we have a first question from Russ Beaton. So um, Russ, if you could unmute yourself and ask your question, that'd be great. Can you hear me? Can, we can indeed. All right. First of all, thanks for appearing, Phil, and it's good to see you. Good seeing you too, Russ. I'd like to uh, invoke a phrase that I know you're very familiar with, and that is the urban-rural divide, yeah. which is been a, a monstrous issue in the national election. Of course, we have our, our versions of it here in Oregon. Is that a useful phrase as we, as we delve into policy or has it just become kind of a stereotypical way of describing our problems? I think it's useful, but only to a point. I, when I look at uh, demographics like these and others, I am struck at times by thinking that our, the biggest single divide we have is generational. And it affects people, whether they live in Northeast inner, you know, outer Northeast Portland or whether they live in Grant County. Um, their inability to access um, uh, things like uh, post-secondary education in an affordable way uh, to uh, buy a house um, and afford that in, given the wages in their community. Um, uh, and, I think that uh, all of these divides are useful to a point if they try to point the way to what might be some shared solutions. So what I was trying to get at today was that there are things that clearly are gonna always divide us. We'll have differences about stuff, things, but the, Adam Davis, who's a pollster, the value, Oregon Values and Belief Survey, uh, consistently asks Oregonians what they value the most. And the two things that they value the most are their family and the outdoors. And I may value different things about the outdoors um, than you know, maybe cross-country skiing and hiking than people do in, let's say, uh, Eastern Oregon, where it might be hunting and, and, and fishing and, uh, and, and uh, snowmobiling rather than cross-country skiing. But we have a shared sense of that appreciation of, of, of nature. And I think all of us can look around and say, we're not doing as well by it as we could be. And so uh, similarly with calling for a, a version of, of, you know, quite honestly, national service that make, how can Oregon in a sense present itself as doing more to encourage the service of, of young people and communities across Oregon than any other state. That's gonna get people working side by side. If we can't connect with people in any meaningful way, um, I think those divides will continue to worsen across not just rural urban geographies, but, but ages and social classes and who's college educated and, and who isn't. So um, uh, yeah, it's useful to a point, but let's not, let's focus on, on those shared stories and programs that we think have the highest potential or have a high potential 
to, to bring Oregon together in a shared enterprise and educating our kids and restoring our landscapes and yes, making our welcome centers look a little bit more welcoming, I think are things that fall in that category. Okay, and our next question is from Jim Shepke, and this is in the Q&A. I agree with you about how important third grade reading proficiency is. Do you have ideas about how we could improve this? And do you think public libraries are a part of the answers? Salem? Oh, I, I, I love public libraries. I worked at Portland State and had a lot of chance to talk to city managers and mayors who described for me how libraries have profoundly changed their function over the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, they still have books and magazines, but they're often community gathering places and places to uh, uh, have enrichment programs for kids and, and education. Um, yeah, the third grade reading thing, I would say this to anybody running for governor, and I would say this to anybody thinking about who they'll vote for for governor in 2022, and I, by the way, I'm not running at all. I, if I were running for governor in 2022, I would go, in every speech I would give, I would say this, if in four years I have succeeded on this one thing in making a significant difference in the kids at third grade that can be proficient in reading because of the policies that we've worked on. I'm gonna ask you to reelect me, even if you disagree with everything else that I stand for, because I hope you would see how important that is, what my position on abortion or gun rights or anything. And I'd say that if I have failed to do that after four years, then I think you need a new governor and you shouldn't vote for me. And if you agree 100% of all my views and all these other things, you know, public administration and politics is about not focusing on a hundred things and doing them all kind of well and focusing on two or three things at a given moment and doing them as importantly as we can. I think you start with basically saying we're going to provide this kind of uh, schooling for everybody, regardless of income. It's not about Head Start, which is means tested it's to everybody, it's an entitlement. Far more important than entitling anybody to free college is entitling three and four year olds to, to preschool. And, and to parents in the audience, or you know, maybe if you're a parent or even a grandparent, you know this. If you think about our current education system, everyone K through 12 is entitled to 100% paid public education regardless of income. And even when you get to community college and, and college in Oregon, you're entitled to a big portion of that paid because we know that tuition as high as it is, is still a fraction of the total cost of delivering those services. Norma Paulus, former secretary of state and education uh, superintendent, once asked a question in a speech that I'll never forget. She said, so tell me what's a four-year-old entitled to? And under the current Oregon regime of how we think about public education, the four-year-old is entitled to a big fat zero. There is no entitlement. We may provide the program and try to help people blow a certain income, but it is not a universal program. So I think you start from that. And then you recognize that education is about trained staff and professionals as well as volunteers. And we're gonna need a lot more teachers. We're gonna need a lot more people uh, to volunteer in the schools. And look at those demographics. There's a lot of us now, every day, 10,000 people in America retire. Well. We can do, what can we do more of? I know we're doing some of it, but what can we do more of to get members of that demographic to help out in, in these schools with a much more diverse set of kids 
um, uh, than ever before. So those are, those are a couple thoughts, but but you know this should be the single most important thing I would argue uh, in in our in our political discourse going going forward. And many more many important things, but I would put this first and foremost. Thank you for that, Phil. And our next question is from Michael Dwayne Brown. What is the best way for proponents to get Oregon or other states to use independent commission structure for redistricting? Well, unfortunately, the only choice that I see is the is 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 the ballot initiative process, unless there can be such intense pressure put by Democrats and Republicans alike on their Republican and Democratic legislators to refer a ballot measure out to do it. I mean, again, I I I I don't know all the details. I'm sure people are going to whack me for saying, well, Phil, you really didn't, you know, it was really hard to draw a district that didn't go from Bend to Eastmoreland. Fine. But I think that, you know, I'll go, you know, the Democrats just were furious that the Republicans walked out over the climate change bill, left the legislature, denied a quorum, okay, uh, about two years ago. And they walked out in the 2021 session as well. I remember when the Democrats walked out in 2001 because they didn't like the Republican redistricting plan. To have the Democrats then praise the people in Texas for walking out because the voting rights bill down there, which was terrible. But legislators need to do their job. And by the way, I think we ought to prohibit legislators from walking out on their job. And if they do so, they've lost their job. And by goodbye, we'll have a special election now. And we may, you know, and don't let the political parties appoint the vacancy, do what 25 states do and, and, and replace people in a special election if they're unwilling to do their job. And Democrat and Republican alike ought to get whacked for that. But short of that kind of intense pressure on our legislators right now, try it. Okay. Get your friends that might be the biggest Trumpsters and you're a Biden fan or vice versa, get together and say, hey, we're going to fight about everything else, but let's agree on this. Um, uh, to start a massive letter campaign, but I, but I, but short of that, I think that you have to sign a ballot measure and we'll force a vote on it, just as we had to force a vote on the uh, vote by mail system back in the day when it became too political and partisan. So, yeah, you can tell I have a little bit of energy about this, uh, but the time has come for Oregon to, in a sense, grow up when it comes to doing redistricting in a in, in a less partisan in a more credible way. Well, indeed, I, I think you're not alone in being kind of um, energized up about this topic. So, and I'm afraid we only have uh, one, we might have uh, time for two more questions. Okay. There are a number of them, but we just can't get to them all. Maybe we'll have to have you back. But this one from Neil Pearson, both parties are trying to figure out whether they win elections by energizing the base, quote, unquote, base, unquote, the more extreme elements or by moving to the center. Where are the votes? I, that's a great, that's a, it's a great question. Um, I've been occupied for much of the last two years with trying, I'll say, spreading the gospel of what we now call vote at home, because most of us who get our mails, uh, mailed out ballots actually return them in person now to other states. And what's very clear to me is the profound fear that Republicans at the moment exhibit more publicly and perhaps more deeply, but Democrats also have, I've talked to, of, of higher turnout. Um, I think the evidence is now clear, if not compelling, that when you automatically deliver every voter their ballot, you will get higher turnout than you otherwise would, but you'll get it among everybody. 
You'll get it among young people and old people. You'll get it among Trump voters and Biden voters. You'll get it among, you know, rural non-college educated whites, and you'll get it among, you know, the college educated. And where all that sorts out, well, we'll see. Because the more people vote, the more of a mirror it is on our society. I have said, and I'll get whacked for it, I'm sure, for the long-term health of our democracy, we are better off living in a country where 80% of the people or more vote. And yeah, they may elect a Donald Trump than if only 60% vote and they would elect a Joe Biden. And you know, I think Trump is a clear and present danger to American democracy. Um, and uh, you know, But that's not the time and place to go into that. But I really believe that. And I think you have to believe it if you believe in the experiment that we've had now for over 230 years. Democracy means democracy. And yeah, it's a republic, we elect the representatives, but you want as many people to elect those representatives as, as possible. So I don't, I say to people in, in my own political party, you need to have faith that when turnout is maximized, your ideas will prevail because you believe that strongly in your ideas. And I say that to my Republican friends. We ought to be doing everything we can to boost turnout and Oregon's been a national model about how to do it. And I'd like, before I uh, pass off this earthly veil in tears to see, you know, most states in America do it. Right now it's eight. But uh, uh, politics should be about participation, not trying to game the system and hope the other side voters don't show up and your voters do. We want as many people to show up as possible and, and then of course educate them in the process so we all can cast as, as informed a vote as possible knowing that none of us knows as much as any of us should know about everything. And so thus it's the best we can do. Democracy is sometimes messy. Oh, it is. You've been listening to former Oregon Secretary of State Phil Keesling reviewing Oregon's achievements, the status of school graduation figures, and business recovery, and which communities are doing best around the state. KMUZ would like to thank Salem City Club for the audio recording to make this program, and the entire panel discussion and Q&A is permanently posted in their archive at SalemCityClub.com, where you can review it and learn more about joining the City Club and supporting all its great programs. This is Community Radio KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting local news and public information for the Mid-Willamette Valley. This program is aired on Fridays at noon and repeated Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Thanks for listening.